welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. So I know I cr- dragged you out of bed early in the morning. Appreciate you doing this, buddy. How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. I'm, I'm definitely not as energetic as I usually would be when we do the intros, but I will do my darndest to sound like I'm jazzed. Well, when we have a guest who's on the continent, uh, there's no way in the world you're going to participate, but at least <laughs> at least we get you to intro. Some of these, fine, I mean, I love find time um, as the Outlook add-in and, you know, you do the right thing of just like sending options through to our guests and adding me to it as like optional to pick a time. And I opened up that one with Yannick and it was like five in the morning, six in the morning, <laughs> seven in the morning. I'm like, there is no, no hope that this is going to happen. <laughs> So if people are listening to the show going, how comes Jeremy isn't interviewing any of the guests? It's because we've just been interviewing all the people in Europe. And uh, yeah, that just doesn't work for me, unfortunately. But uh, it was a great show. I can't wait for folks to listen to that. So uh, before we get started on that, though, a couple of quick little uh, links as we usually do. First one, uh, we're going to post a link in the show notes for the Microsoft Graph on the Q&A system. I know you mentioned this uh, last week or two weeks ago that it's rolled out now and uh so we didn't really share. <laughs> so this will be easier for folks. Yeah, so it's been a journey for us. We, for the last five years, I guess, have been on Stack Overflow. And quite frankly, we didn't do the best job over there of monitoring it in an accurate way and getting answers for everyone. And it was typically because we, it was very hard to get PMs to keep jumping in, looking for their questions and um, you know getting answers to them. And so we actually have a dedicated, what we call a graph care team, um, internally now, they are um, monitoring um, both Stack and Microsoft Q and A, but we're prioritizing Microsoft Q and A because it's a big part of our Docs.com platform. And there's some work being done right now, for instance, that you know, if a Microsoft Q and A topic question is asking about a particular API, we'll be able to surface those questions and answers directly on the API page in the Docs, just because of what Q and A is doing, uh, because it's been built as part of the Docs.Microsoft.com platform. Um, and so there are different forums for each workload on the graph. So there's one for OneDrive, one for Teams, you know, identity. So you can kind of drop in and ask your question there and the team will basically try and answer themselves or they'll escalate directly to the PMs and manage their escalations from this team, which is great. So hopefully it means that there's less things dropping off the radar. And so if you go to developer.microsoft.com slash graph slash support, um, that page will link you off to Microsoft Q&A, but it also shows you what you can do to raise support tickets if it's like a genuine service issue and not a, I can't get this thing to work or how what's the best way to do this. And um, in addition to that, you can get to that page from going to the graph homepage and just clicking resources in the top navigation and you'll see the support link there as well. So you don't have to remember that URL. Um, it's just the resources section in the top nav. So um, yeah, I'd love any feedback there on q and I've been a bit lazy recently. And actually, if I see people asking me stuff on Twitter, I'm kind of asking them to ask the questions in Q&A, primarily because often it comes really hard in Twitter to answer questions, even with the new character limit. And it's definitely more discoverable in Q&A if people go searching for it on Google, like after the facts. It's very rare that you'll see a tweet answer show up in a in a Google search result, whereas Q&A does show up. So it isn't me sending you and ignoring you. It's me trying to get you to be in the right place as a, like a building a knowledge base, basically. Yeah. Hey, does your graph care team help you 
figure out where things should be posted because I, I discovered a bug of this yes last night that I thought it was a graph issue because it was Teams and then I was in the team issue and it turns out it was the bot framework skills adaptation talking to the team's backend service. It was kind of crazy. So, and there's already an issue in the bot framework repo for it, but you know, it's one of those, how do you- Other ways you just couldn't find I it. I couldn't find it because I was searching in graph and I was searching in teams <laughs> and it was crazy. Yeah, and actually, so the other benefit of Q&A is, is that all the, it, Azure actually were the first engineering group in there. And so they, all, they have a lot of the Q&A stuff in there. And so you can transfer from forum to forum or clone it, which is really useful. So there's a bunch of stuff we're doing, knowing that all of our products and technologies intermingle to make that easier. I definitely, you know, the like discovering where it should land in the first place is often quite hard. And so that's why we're, we're trying to make the forum, like the, the taxonomy of the different names in graph more workload based. So it's, it's easier to know uh, where to, where to put it. Like, so it maps to the docs, basically. Yeah. So, and having a single platform, in theory, search should be able to, if, I, if I'm on the Q&A site and I search and I'm in a different forum, I de- hopefully it'll at least surface something that might be interesting. So good to have it all in one place, owned by one team. Yeah. The, the other cool thing is, is um, you can hover over the aunt who the person has responded and see whether they're like a Microsoft employee, a PM, or whether it's someone from the community, which... It's actually hard to do with Stack Overflow unless you kind of look at their handle and look at their profile. Um, and actually, if an MVP or a RD responds to. All right, next on the list it, that I saw was the Microsoft Bookings APIs on Microsoft Graph. And to be honest, I didn't even know that Bookings had made it onto the graph. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the first, we call it first party experience APIs from the team side that's on there. Shifts and Bookings are the two big ones. Uh, it's, it's still in beta, but their team is working to make that go to GA um, at the moment. And so we should really go find, well, I know the PM, we should go ask them to come on the show to talk about it in more detail. But yeah, if you're doing anything with bookings on Teams in the UI, there is an API available in beta right now that you should explore. And we obviously with the pandemic, this has actually been really um, highly used. You know, I actually saw this link. I was reading an article. There is a there's a, a paid offering that Azure offers. It's the Azure Health Bot, and it, it it's not a developer-y thing, yeah. but that service uses bookings to help, you know obviously to yeah, book yeah, things yeah. with the healthcare is part of the pandemic stuff. So yeah, but uh, there's a ton of use cases for bookings totally. uh, for for you know small business and stuff, and being able to integrate would be great. So I, I had no idea that it had made it to the graph, so I wanted to call it out. It was great to see. Yeah, it's really neat. The last Microsoft link I found this week really is not graph-specific, but there's a series that was kicked off on the um, DevOps blog. It's called On-Prem to the Cloud, Getting Started, Episode 1. So they promised a series on on how to move applications to the cloud. And obviously that applies to lots of people in our audience. And so I thought I'd at least put a link onto that, something that you can follow in all your spare time. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing a lot of that with what we call our legacy APIs that we're deprecating through at the moment, like the Exchange Web Services and you know um, Outlook REST and trying to move people over to Microsoft Graph. And um, it's been really interesting having these conversations with these large ISVs that have been in our ecosystem for a while and talking about the benefits of being on graph rather than these legacy APIs. And one of the things that all often comes up is like, well, these APIs also exist on our on-premises server products too. And, you know, coding for both graph and EWS to have one product that works for both 
an on-premises server product and ours is something that we have to kind of talk through a lot with um, these partners. So it's interesting to see this is happening, not just for you know our lens, but also with the bigger, broader lens still. Like this is a big push to get off on-prem to moving to the cloud. I guess the pandemic's probably pushed this a lot with everyone working from home and not being able to connect to servers in offices as easily. Uh, from home. Yeah, yeah the interesting, my, my son-in-law is an architect, but he is the, the tech guy at his office because he's the youngest, right? <laughs> but uh, the, the struggles that he's been telling me about with VPNs to file shares uh, when the pandemic started, uh, you know, last month he mentioned all their files are on OneDrive, so at least now they've moved, but I can certainly see the struggles, uh, yeah, to your point, absolutely. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be from remote VPNing downloading architectural files. My brother's an architect too, and he, he's the tech guy in his firm as well. And of course, that just means I'm their tech guy, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I'm assuming comes up with you too. Yeah, yeah. The, the last the link I have is uh, somewhat related to our, our guest this week. So I posted a link to a podcast episode of Run As Radio, which is Richard Campbell. And Run As Radio does a lot of IT pro admin type of things. But he has a, an episode called Secrets Management in PowerShell with Sidney Smith. And Obviously, when I hear secrets management, my ears perk up for sure. So I wanted to at least get that in front of you. That That's a, a product that they work on. And it's interesting to learn what's going on because sometimes a developer needs to do scripting and stuff. And as Yannick will talk about in our show this week, he's using the CLI and PowerShell and DevOps, which doesn't necessarily have a UI for folks to enter a password to, to connect to their SharePoint app catalog, for example. So I wanted to get uh, secrets management in front of our folks, if you have time to listen to that episode, um, and as well, uh, help raise your level of, of proficiency, as Yannick talks about in our show this week. Yeah, I mean, Richard uh, has been doing podcasts for the longest time, and I, I love his radio voice that he's kind of grown over the years. You know, he started off really, really knowing his stuff and has set the way for a tech podcast. So if you aren't already listening to that or .NET Rocks, I mean, obviously you need to be interested in those topics, but um, they are really, really good shows to listen to in the tech world. So um, I, I definitely do that to just keep abreast of IT admins and what their top themes are because more and more with a graph, whether it's our PowerShell SDK or uh, things we're doing where they're trying to get data at scale, we have to understand their worlds you know, really well. And I will apologize that our show's not as smooth as Richard's show. <laughs> he must put a lot of time prep work in. So <laughs> thanks for sticking with us, everyone. We appreciate he does. that. Yeah. yeah. It is his part-time role, though. Yeah. So, yeah, um, so. so th this week I talked with Yannick Reekmans, and I mispronounced his last name, as I always do. And Yannick was great to come on and talk about He's got a couple of blog posts that I put in the show notes about uh, using... Azure DevOps was part of the, the process to get applications that interact with uh, SharePoint framework and or Microsoft 365. And so it was great for him to come on and explain what he did. And you know what, he, he, the first thing he told me is, well, DevOps isn't my specialty, but I think it was great perspective because he's just a developer trying to get work done. And now he went from just him to being a team and he's got to help support a team. And these are the struggles that everyone goes through. So it was great to get his first experience. I think everyone has that. Yeah. I mean, I ended up being a TFS architect in Australia because of me having to go through that journey of being a single dev to a team and having to convince people the right thing with all this stuff. So yeah. and automated builds and, and all that. So I, I must admit, this is a great example of like, I, I mean, everyone's over the pandemic, but, you know, Yannick was always someone that wherever you saw him in at a conference center or, you know, a community event, he always was smiling and he'd always say hello. 
And uh, it was just always great to catch up with him. So it's good to kind of get him on the show and hear his voice as, as a very least in this scenario right now where we can't go anywhere. Yeah. So uh, thanks for rolling out of bed. And for folks listening, Yannick is much more energy than Jeremy is right now. So uh, <laughs> to be fair, it's early. <laughs> Being cooled out. <laughs> so thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. And we'll chat next week. See you, buddy. This week on the podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Yannick Rechtmans. And in typical fashion, I'm going to screw up the last name. So welcome to the show, Yannick. All right. Thank you for having me, Paul. Um, and so please do me a favor and, and say your name again. I know you told me before we clicked record, but I'm terrible with names. I apologize. So please introduce yourself to, to our audience. So I'm Yannick Rechtmans. I'm a cloud solution architect in Belgium. I run my own uh, consultancy firm called Cubix. We have a seven people. We're focusing mainly on Microsoft Teams, on SharePoint collaboration, and uh, on Power Platform. That's what I do. I'm an Office Development MVP, and I'm participating quite heavily in the community, doing my PRs here and there, and submitting and blogging. Excellent. And I, you caught my attention a couple of weeks back because you were working on the solutions and the CLI. And so the, the, I want to start with the most of our, our discussion this week around using the Microsoft CLI in Azure DevOps. And so I guess we'll just start with a little bit of introduction. So um, how do you use the CLI in your DevOps pipelines? For whatever I need to automate during uh, my project. <laughs> so... So usually the answer is it depends, but your answer yeah. is everything. So it depends on everything. Uh, it's one and the same for me. No, um, what when you do a project, I see a lot of stuff that that is one time. You start with something, and it's let me do this one time, and then something fails, and a week later you have to do it again, and then apparently two days later you have to do it again. So I I automate everything to make sure that um, when I need to come back to a project after a week or after a month or after six months that I still know how something is deployed, installed or configured. It also helps me with dev tenants that expire and I have to reinstall a project. So I use CLI and PMP PowerShell for basically everything. Uh, installing SPFX solutions, uh, configuring tenant settings to make sure that when a project gets installed um, or configured on an environment, everything is configured the same way as it used to be before. Okay, and so the, the first thing that I think most people would struggle with, at least I know it was a head scratcher for me when I got started, I'm in Azure DevOps, and that means that something's running in the cloud, right? it's just magically running, and, and this case would be a pipeline, and, and you mentioned deploying SPFX. So, how, how do I get started with that? Because obviously, the first thing I do when I do the CLI is I log in. How do I handle all those kind of scenarios in a DevOps scenario? Well, that's quite interesting. And it was a challenge as well to get uh, get authenticated in, uh, in Azure DevOps. So in a pipeline, you first build all of your um, artifacts, and then you want to deploy them. And then the first thing you need to do is authenticating. Um, now, authenticating with CLI happens with username, password. It's one of the ways. It's not the best way for automated <laughs> deployments. So uh, you want to do something different. You want to do app-only authentication. So you need an app registration in your Azure AD to make uh, all of the permission scopes or set all the permission scopes like they need to be. And then you need to go in CLI and you have to enter your client ID and your certificate. And then that's the second problem because your certificate is on your computer or somewhere in Azure and you have to fetch it. Now you can 
go a lot of ways uh, for it. One of the easiest ways is you take your certificate and you store it in your solution. So you store it in your code and you put it on, on Git, basically, in uh, Azure DevOps. But then that's also not so secure to go store your certificate in there. So the best way would be to put it in a key vault. And then Azure DevOps has a very nice feature where you can connect from your DevOps pipeline to a key vault and everything that's in your key vault will be exposed as a variable. So you can use the information in your key vault as a variable in your pipeline. Yeah, which is pretty slick stuff, right? And then uh, from what I remember, right, what I end up putting in my what I end up putting in my pipeline is like the the thumbprint, right? The certificate thumbprint is all I need, or is it not even that anymore? Well, you need the certificate itself. So if you link your key vault to your pipeline and you use your certificate name as a variable in your pipeline, what you'll get back is your certificate in a base64 encoded string. Ah, uh, there you go. So I tell my pipeline what the name of the certificate is and what the name of the key vault is, and it, it handles all the magic on the back end. Yeah, then, so it right? handles all the magic on the back end, given that you already have a service connection from Azure DevOps to your Azure, and that service connection has permissions on your key vault. So you can get everything that's in your key vault, and you can put it or use it in your pipeline. When I did this the first time in November uh, 2020, and I got back, back my uh, basically foreign-coded certificate, CLI didn't really like that. Um, so I had to do a lot of magic to make that work. But luckily, we simplified that um, in between. What you had to do was you got a basically foreign-coded certificate, but you cannot pass that in directly into CLI. CLI expects it to be or expected it to be a file either a PFX or a PEM, two types of certificate files. If I got my certificate in Base64 encoded, put it into a PFX file and try to use it in CLI, CLI said, nah, ain't gonna happen. Because you have to give in a password. And a certificate that you get from Azure Key Vault has no password, not an empty password, just no password. And CLI didn't like that. So you cannot pass in no password into CLI because then it would think that it would be a PM file instead of a PFX. So it was a very challenging moment there. So I took my PFX, I took the thumbprint out of it because you also need the thumbprint to pass into CLI. I used OpenSSL inside my uh, DevOps pipeline to transform the PFX into a PM, and then I could do everything or authenticate in uh, Azure DevOps in my pipeline. Now, because I really did not like that process, I PR'd, um, I think, four different fixes or changes to CLI so that it now accepts um, a base64 um, string, just the string, and it works as well. No need for the thumbprint anymore, no need to transform your string into a PFX, into a PEM, and do all of the work. Now everything can be done with the base64 encoded string that you get back directly from uh, the key vault. So for for listeners and for myself, it is magic. It just magically works because you've done all that legwork for us. So thank you very much. That's excellent. You're welcome. Um, you know, and we should clarify when you say CLI, what what specific CLI are you referring to here? We kind of should we kind of messed that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm using the CLI for Microsoft 365. It used to be called Office 365 CLI, I believe, but it got renamed last year. And it's uh, started by Waldek Masikars and now maintained by a group of five 
eight people, I don't remember, and they um, use it for cross-platform commands to uh, to Office 365 and Microsoft 365. Yes, and so just kind of like to close the loop then on, on the pipeline, I'm guessing that you have steps in the pipeline then that make sure that's installed and you run a script command or something, right, to get that all yeah. basic stuff there? Yeah, yeah so... One of the first steps in my pipeline is to get CLI installed. Yeah. What What's happening, I'm guessing, then, is that you're running some type of login command in CLI with this certificate to establish the connection, and then you move on to whatever else has to happen. Is that it, or is there more steps involved? No, that's it. So you run M365 login, you pause in client ID and the basic C4 encoded uh, certificate, and I believe a tenant ID, which is also quite important, and then you're connected, you're authenticated, and you can run uh, commands like uh, uh, get a list item in SharePoint or create a new list item, send emails if you would like that in your pipeline, so things like that. And one of the others is uh, add an SPFX package into your app catalog, install it, update it. So that's what we do in the pipeline, every new version of SPFX directly. Okay. So I think there's some more setup that's probably involved, right? Now, the you mentioned that when running the command, I'm passing in a tenant. And you also mentioned you have new, maybe a new dev tenant you're standing up. So first of all, this app registration, can that be a multi-tenant app? Or do I need to put that app registration in the target tenant? Well, it can be a multi-tenant app, but you have to approve it in your own tenant, of course. Yeah, so that was my next question, right? So if I'm going to set up DevOps to push to tenant X, I'm guessing I need to go do the consent flow of some fashion there, right? Yeah, so you have to consent that app in tenant X. And and how how do you do consenting as a developer? <laughs> Obviously, this is maybe not a customer tenant, but do you, do you just log into the portal and click the magic button, or do you do a trick there? <laughs> no, I log into the portal and click the magic button. It's the, <laughs> it's the easiest way to get going in your development tenants. I know there are some ways to automate that as well, but really, when you do development, the easiest thing is to go into portal.azure.com, register your app, and click the magic grant admin consent button, and then things are... <laughs> Magically done. Yeah, and I would just point out that make please do this in your developer tenant, not your production tenant. <laughs> Correct. But for developer tenants, it is the easiest way to uh, to do that. Yes, awesome. Well, so that that's wonderful, wonderful stuff. And now, since you know, I first saw you talking about DevOps and CLI, you've, you've done a couple more blog posts, and the, the next one is totally outside of my wheelhouse about using the CLI in Docker containers. For those of like me who don't know anything about containers at all, first of all, what is why would I be using a container in Azure DevOps, or why am I using a CLI Docker container? Yeah, well, let's say, why would you use a container, first of all? A container is a collection of all of everything you need to run uh, your application. So you containerize an application means that you bundle everything together and it runs on any system where you want to execute it. So it doesn't depend on the host system installation, but it just wraps everything in a container. Now, that means next step, why would you run CLI in a container? Well, because you then don't need to install CLI yourself in your uh, on your computer, but also not on your build agent. Because if you go into Azure DevOps and you run a command, it runs the command on a computer somewhere called a build agent. And Microsoft provides some hosted build agents with some tooling installed already. But the Microsoft 365 CLI is not one of them. 
So like we said before, you have to install that CLI in your pipeline. And then after your pipeline is done executing, Microsoft deletes the virtual machine. And the next time you have to install it again. That's when somewhere half of December last year, the Microsoft 365 CLI team uh, released a Docker container. So that's a container they put on their Docker registry. So you can freely go download it and, and use it which already has all the dependencies for running CLI like wrapped up in that container. So when you do that in, in Azure DevOps, it's as simple as saying, let me execute my CLI commands inside this container that CLI provides for me. So I don't have to install anything in my build agents or in my build pipeline because everything is wrapped in that container. So does the build pipeline then need to say, I need to use a container that's sitting out somewhere or does it build up a container? How, how, does, that, how does that work? Because now, obviously the build agent that comes with isn't going to have what you need. It's not going to have the container either, right? No, it doesn't have the container. So the, how that works is you say, you still specify a build agent. So you say, I want to run it on Windows Server 2019 or on Ubuntu 20.04, which is two of the out-of-the-box build agents that are available. And then instead of executing your build steps or your jobs directly on the build agent, you say that you do a container job. And with a container job, you specify the container where every step of your job has to be executed. So that means you say, I want to use this container that's been provided by Microsoft 365 CLI, and I want to execute all the next steps inside that container. And DevOps will do all the magic. So you you just reach out. It has to your container has to either be on Docker Hub, which is a, a public container registry, or on um, Azure Container Registry. So it can be hosted on Azure Container Registry, a private, which is a private container uh, registry that you can spin up. And then you just pass in the URL basically to that Docker container and DevOps will try to authenticate in case of Azure Container Registry or Docker Hub will do it uh, anonymously and fetch the container, install it on the build agent, boot it up, and then all of the next steps of your build pipeline will be executed inside that agent. Okay, and so what, would I use that to do to build the SPFX package, for example, or is that going to be two different steps and I just run the, how, how do I go about structuring, how, how would you go about structuring your build pipeline to handle that scenario where I have a, a container for the CLI, but I also need to run all this node gulp stuff? Yeah, so there are two options there. So either you use an SPFX container to build your SPFX packages. So that would be one step, one container job using one specific image configured for uh, SPFX build uh, steps or everything you need to do to build your SPFX package. And then a second step that will use the official Office or Microsoft 365 CLI Docker image to install that SPFX package, run the CLI commands and, and get it over into your uh, tenant. Now, what you also could do is create your own Docker container and host it somewhere that has everything. So that it has the NPM install and the node install that you need for building your SPFX package, but also has CLI installed to install the resulting package into your tenant. And that you can put on your own Azure Container Registry and fetch. The upside for that is you will only be spinning up one container on your build agent. With the previous one, you will would be spinning up the SPFX container to build it, spin down, spin up your uh, CLI container, and then spin it down again. 
with one container containing everything, you can like automate it. It's quite interesting if you have a lot of stuff that needs to happen inside a container or on your build agent and you don't have access to um, your, your build agent per se to install it up front. If you go self-hosted and you have your self-hosted build agent, you can make sure that you have all of the tooling installed on it and that's, that's okay. But if you go Microsoft hosted, which most of the people do, all that tooling isn't available and you will have to go into your pipeline and install it um, each time again. So you have to install and make sure that the correct node version is used and the correct NPM uh, version is used. Uh, lots of other stuff to be configured and that can take a lot of time to get all the tooling installed. And if you use a Docker container, it just takes the time to spin up the Docker container. So you can speed up your deployments. Okay, yeah, so I want, I'm gonna circle back to that, your own build agent bit later, but I, I wanna <laughs> dive further. So so when, when you first started re referring to containers, right? And as I said, I, I don't use them and so unclear, you're not necessarily pushing out a container that's gonna run your application. You're just using containers solely to run a specific build steps. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, correct. You can package your own application in a container and then push it out into the world in containers. Uh, like ISVs are doing that to uh, make sure that with heavy loads, uh, more containers can be spun up with their application. Now, I'm just using the container in my DevOps pipeline to build my uh, application and then push it out into Office 365 or uh, wherever. So I guess the trade-off is a case of if I, I have you know X number of steps that need to run and it takes however long to run it, because I'm installing Node and installing Gulp and installing this and installing that, I guess the trade-off is how long does it take to spin up a container and I can choose which way to go. Is that a fair enough statement? Yeah, correct. So yeah, that, that's, a, that's the whole idea of, of looking at this. Um, if you need seven steps and it takes 10 minutes to get all your tooling installed, you're losing 10 minutes in your build pipeline and you pay per minute in your build pipeline. So that's not ideal. And it might take two minutes to spin up a Docker container. Then, yeah, it's a good idea to go for a Docker container. As well as if you install tooling directly from GitHub and you install the latest version because you like to live on the edge and you don't do fixed uh, versions uh, of tooling, then the build pipeline that works today might not work tomorrow because you're fetching a new version of some tooling. And that's a good idea to go a Docker container with the fixed version installed already. Which again means you're taking on a, a, a task to make sure that's up to date as necessary, right? Although I guess for, for I don't worry so much about runtime vulnerabilities if all I'm doing is building a package, right? I guess so, so in that regard, it kind of makes sense. All right, so let's go back to this, your own build agent bit, because that's another blog post that I saw that came in just uh, this week. And I have to admit, I didn't fully understand and read the whole thing. So what what were you doing trying to do your own build agent? Let, let give folks a clue to what's going on there. Yeah, I asked myself that as well after hours of uh, trying to get this, uh, this pipeline running. So with Azure DevOps, you run your tasks on an agent, a build agent. And Microsoft provides cloud-hosted uh, agents. And with Azure, every Azure DevOps environment that you spin up, you get one for free. And it has some limits. So you can only run a pipeline for a maximum of 60 minutes and you can only have 
1,800 build minutes per month or something. And I think you can only run one at a time. If you have multiple yeah. so, builds, they, they just queue up, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you got one for free, which is fun, unless you have 20 developers trying to get their code built and they all end up in a queue waiting for that one uh, user to have his project finished. So that's not ideal. <laughs> which takes 10 minutes to install all the tools. <laughs> yeah. So that was not ideal. And we were starting to run into that in our company. So there was a trade-off to make. Either we buy Microsoft hosted agents at some $40 uh, per month um, per agent, or we go self-hosted, which means you spin up a VM, you install some tooling for Microsoft on it to register that VM as a built agent in your Azure DevOps. And you say, like, run all my deployment steps on that specific VM. So Azure DevOps will connect to the VM, push all the source code over there, and uh, run the steps. So that's uh, the trade-off. Well, we could have gone Microsoft hosted at $40 a, an agent a month, but that wouldn't be so much fun. So I decided to go self-hosted. And I had some requirements for self-hosted agents because, like I said, on a Microsoft hosted agent, lots of tooling is pre-installed. And I kind of liked all the tooling that was installed. So I wanted all of that installed as well on my build agent. So what I tried to do was use the information that Microsoft made available on GitHub and build my own VM or my own image and then run that in a pipeline because create a VM image today and then next week Microsoft does an update. I want to recreate it. So I used Azure DevOps to create an Azure DevOps build agent so I can repeat the process as much as I'd like. A little bit of recursion going on there, right? Okay, hope you haven't broken the whole world yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that experience go for you? <laughs> well, that wasn't great because um, on GitHub, Microsoft used to provide their build agents as a Docker image. Remember the Docker image from before, everything packaged, uh, awesome, very easy to spin up. But with some, or due to some licensing issues, they cannot do that anymore. So they're now providing installation steps for their um, build agents, which is also automated. They use Packer by HashiCorp, which is an automated tooling that steps through all the steps that's necessary to configure a VM. And in the end, does a sysprep on it. So you have a, a standardized image that you can start a new VM on. So to create a Windows Server 2019 image with all the tooling installed, it takes about six and a half hours, seven hours to run. So that was quite challenging because on day one and two, there was a bug in the GitHub uh, repository, which made the whole process fail after six hours and 15 minutes. So very close to the end. So yeah, it was quite annoying. <laughs> but once I got that image, um, yeah, everything went very smooth. So, uh, so you now have a, this is a VM image or a Docker container image or both? A VM image. Okay. So Packer, how Packer works is, Packer creates a VM where it runs. So it's a temporary VM on which it executes itself. And then it instantiates another VM where it installs all the tooling. At the end of the tooling, it sysprep's that new VM. So you end up with a sysprep VHD. Remember for Hyper-V people uh, that used to work with Hyper-V. So a VHD, which is a disk file, uh, sysprep'd. And then it destroys all the temporary uh, resources. So it destroys the VM that it spun up to install the resources and the, the VM that it 
runs on itself. So that's all cleaned up. And then you end up with a VHD. Then I took that VHD and transformed it into an Azure managed image, which is another type of VM image in Azure. And then I created an Azure virtual machine scale set. And I attached the image to the scale set. So every time that a new VM gets started in that virtual machine scale set, it uses that sysprep image to boot up a new uh, VM. And so tying this all together, I kick off a build and it says, oh, I need, I need a build agent of my own. So it goes out to that scale set and there's either a VM there or it creates a new one because that's what scale sets do. Again, more black magic for Paul. Thank you very much. <laughs> and then uh, that VM, once it's booted, it has the build tools that you want on there. So I, I, you said that you had Microsoft has a list. I'm guessing you put extra stuff on there as well that you're that you need for your builds. Right. I guess that would be the whole point would be add some more stuff on top of it. Right. We're trying we're trying we're spending seven hours to try to get rid of 10 minutes. <laughs> Yeah, so you, you totally understood that correctly. So the whole step was, um, and that's a, that's a new thing in DevOps, it only exists for eight months, I believe, is an, an, a DevOps scale set agent. So the whole scale set, the uh, virtual machine scale set is managed by Azure DevOps. Oh, wow, hold on, hold on, I'm sorry to interrupt you there. So we've been talking about a build agent, which is a piece of software that runs on the PC. You're saying there's another agent that will then control the creation of the PCs. Yeah. Whoa, that's slick. Yeah, that's super cool. So in Azure DevOps, you say, I have a scale set. I want to have a scale set build agent. And then you say, use this Azure virtual machine scale set that you already created um, that exists in Azure. And then DevOps controls it. So you can say um, or configure some steps or some things in DevOps, like how many idle build agents does it need to maintain? So if you put it in two, it will all, always have two virtual machines available. If you kick off a build, which means that one of those agents will be in use because it will be running a build, DevOps will spin up a new agent to always have two VMs available. Um, that's good for people that have a lot of money and can all have, have their VMs running. <laughs> but the interesting part here is that you can also put that on zero. So I have a skill set and it is running no virtual machines. But as soon as I kick off a build um, pipeline and I say I need a VM or a build agent to run my, my build, um, DevOps will check and say, oh, there is no VM available. Let me boot up one. Let me provision one. So DevOps tells the scale set to create a new VM. And then that VM gets registered automatically as a build agent inside DevOps. And after it takes about seven minutes to boot up my, my VM it runs my whole pipeline. But it's worth it for um, builds. We have some builds that run three to four hours with some Power Platform stuff in it, which takes a lot of time. Yeah, that's worth the boot up time. So it takes seven minutes to boot up the VM. And after it's gone idle, so the whole build pipeline is finished, it stays up for 30 minutes. So a next build that happens within those 30 minutes doesn't have the wait time. So it's because it will be using the existing virtual machine. And we've seen that with the short amount of time that we're using it, that we're winning a lot of time back with our build agents because it scales out as much as we need for all of the users that kick off uh, pipelines at the same time. So it scales out. Plus, those stay available. So if someone kicks off a, a second task, it doesn't have the overhead of booting up a new VM because the VM already exists. 
And then it, it tears down the VM. I, you said it waits for 30 minutes, right? So then after 30 minutes, it, it deletes the VM and I stop getting billed for it, right? Yeah. So you don't have to pay for that VM anymore. The only thing I'm not sure yet, Paul, and I told you that before we started recording as well, I'm not sure if we're actually making a profit as opposed <laughs> to having uh, Microsoft hosted build agents at $40 uh, a month. So I'll have to run this for a couple of months to see if it's worth the trade-off. But it was a lot of fun to set up. So that's the most important part. That's that's true. Uh, although, I mean, there's a, uh, there's a lot to be said. You, you never know how many times that you work on a project. Oh, and that technology that we I saw in the pipeline could be useful. I want to provision a, maybe I want to stand up a VM to address scaling, maybe a VM scale set, knowing what that means now might be an alternative. So I, I totally get that. It's an investment in learning, which is pr which is pretty cool. And, and I can, you know, in the past, I've used the build agents primarily to deploy to like on-prem servers. So they really aren't build agents necessarily, yeah. but deploy agents. But I can certainly see some value to having a build environment just the way I want it, right? And I can run my specific utilities and whatever I need to do in there, right? Yeah, that's what you asked. So you, you assumed that I configured my build agent after seven hours, so we got the Microsoft one, and then I put my own tooling on there. So I'm not that advanced yet, but that's, of course, that's the idea that part of my development, or well, part of my building, my build agent, that it will install Microsoft 365 CLI on it and PMP PowerShell on it with a specific version. So I'm sure that on my build agent, I'm running that specific version and I don't have to go install it in each pipeline before I can use it. But that's, like I said, I got this blog post out this week. Um, so it's a step-by-step -step process. I'm very happy with having exactly the same build agent as Microsoft has. We'll see if I make a profit or like if it's cheaper to run it. And then I maybe invest in configuring or making the build agent exactly like I want it to be. Yeah, because I, well, so my experience with SPFX isn't as vast as many, but it seems like when I do, you know, NPM install, <laughs> it's like, go get a cup of coffee or go make a, go make a pot of coffee because it takes a while. And if I have my own build agent, in theory, if I know I'm using version X of a package, I could pre-install that and then NPM install can just read from the local cache right i mean or whatever the tool is these days that you use to install packages right so i, I can certainly see the value in wanting to have a bunch of those dependencies right because i don't rev those that often right when you think about it right so that's that's pretty slick stuff yeah so you well most of us as a developer we started a project and we installed the latest version of a package and then the project runs for six months and we kind of never update that package unless we have a bug and um, the, a new version of the package is fixing that, or we have to go in and fix some technical debt and we take the new versions of the package as well. But you're kind of not taking the risk every day to update to the latest version of a new NPM package. So you can get that in the cache uh, on your build agent and a lot of stuff will be a lot faster. One of the additional um, improvements that I see is um, with a free build agent in Microsoft, Everything is sequential. You can only have one task running at the same time. But if you are self-hosted and you can have multiple build agents running and multiple VMs spin up and you configure your build agent intelligently, then a lot of those tasks, if they don't depend on each other, they can run in parallel on a different agent and then be combined in the end and deployed. So my pipelines mostly are things like build the NPM, uh, package or the SPFX package, like build the PMP templates. So I get a .pmp file 
collect the Azure Resource Manager templates so I can provision my infrastructure on Azure, always the same way. So that's step three. Like the PMP templates, it depends on SPFX because I'm embedding my SPFX package inside the PMP templates. But the other two, they can run in parallel on a different agent. So I speed up a lot of my, uh, like my build pipeline. Yeah. So when you get that all fixed up, we're going to have you back on to talk about that because I can certainly see, <laughs> although, you know, I can remember back in the day when, when we would update stuff on SharePoint on-prem, we'd have to wait for the IIS to recycle and you could either do a special command or you could just wait 20 minutes and let it time out. You know, cause some of us want to sit for 20 minutes and enjoy our coffee. So, <laughs> so don't work too fast. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's still not fast on DevOps. Uh, the, the thing is, it's the same speed as on your own computer. Maybe because it's an Azure VM, it's a bit faster because you can beef up the VM as much as you like. So some things are faster. But in the end, it still has to run all those commands. I just like it that it's automated and that I can hand it over. So for me, the biggest improvement here is when my project is finished and we hand it off to the first line support or the second line support people, service desk uh, in our companies that, that handle uh, change requests and things, I don't have to be involved because it's as simple as they make a change to the code, they push a button and that change gets deployed to the dev environment. They're sure that it works. And when that's checked and validated, they can push a next or approve the next environment and it gets pushed into the test environment of our customer and then into production as well. So we can move the same resources from dev test to production. And we're sure that in between, no one has touched that code. Yeah, that's great. And if it's something you worked on six months ago and you don't remember, you don't have to worry about it. That's excellent. Well, this is this. Thanks so much for coming on. This is fantastic stuff, and you've got me itching to kick the tires. But I don't have I don't have time, and the boss will yell at me if I spend time on that. But but thank you so much for coming on the show. It was great to have you on, and and thanks for all your work in the the PRs and the CLI stuff as well. All right, thank you for having me. It was uh, very fun to have this chat with you, and uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365devpodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. That's all, folks.